50 seasons of New York Islanders hockey. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. A once-in-a-lifetime celebration. Oh, my goodness, Ryan Pollock saved the game! This is Talkin' Isles with Greg Picker and Corey Wright. We welcome you into another edition of Talkin' Isles, the New York Islanders' official interview-based podcast. I'm Greg Picker from the Islanders Radio Network, joined alongside by Corey Wright, New York Islanders Director of Digital. This week, we go back to the broadcasting world, welcoming in Barry Landers, the Islanders radio play-by-play voice from 1980 through 1997. And Greg, I didn't know a lot about Barry Landers coming into this, but he had some fantastic stories, not just about his time with the Islanders and being the radio voice of the dynasty in games like the Easter Epic, the David Volokh goal in 1993, but really just some great stories about the Long Island Ducks and old-time hockey in general. So a lot of fun getting to chat with Barry Landers here today. And we'll take it away with Barry Landers. Bergeon wins it cleanly. Malakoff this time will drive it hard around the boards by Tabaraji. Now in the corner, the Islanders, Thomas. Thomas out in front, turns on shoots, scores! And we're tied at 3-3 with 42.7 seconds to go. We now welcome in Barry Landers to the Talking House podcast. Radio play-by-play voice of the Islanders during the dynasty days into the mid to late 90s, Barry so happy to have you on. We know you have so many stories from your Islander days, but we'll start before your Islander days because doing our research, we noticed that you also called Long Island Ducks hockey out of Comac yes, right. Arena, and that is the genesis of Slapshot. There was the real-life Reggie Dunlop was the player coach of that team. So I'm sure you have so many stories, but maybe just the best of from the Long Island Ducks days. Well, you know, John Brophy uh, played on that team, and of course John Brophy later went on to play a coach in the NHL. And uh, those bus rides, uh, Greg and Corey, were, were unbelievable. Uh, bus trips from Comac, and uh, they would be crazy. I was living in the Bronx and would be running out. Uh, I was living with my parents, and the guys would come from the bus from Comac and meet me at the Throgs Neck Bridge. And a lot of times they, they would kind of, you know, typical of the slap shot kind of era, the bus would move past me as I was waiting and I'd have to run after the bus to pick up the bus and get on the bus with the guys. But but they they were crazy days and uh, we, we had many crazy days. One of the great stories that I have from the Long Island Ducks was we were playing in Johnstown, Pennsylvania on a Thanksgiving a weekend. So we went from Comac out to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and then we had to go play in Utica, uh, in Syracuse the next day. So it was Wednesday night in Johnstown, Thursday Thanksgiving in Syracuse. Well, it was snowing, and usually uh, John Brophy would be involved in a fight uh, because that was the typical thing in the uh, in the EHL. That particular night, the bus was stopped by the police prior to getting into Johnstown, and the police come on and they take John Brophy off he had to pay a fine for the previous time that he had to take him, pay the fine. Then we go to play in Johnstown and then we head to Syracuse. We win the game, on, which was very unusual. We were doing road games on the radio and not home games on the radio. So we were on WGLI, a little radio station in Babylon, which was the home of the Long Island Ducks back then. And we uh, we now didn't have our 
regular bus driver because Thanksgiving. So we had a backup bus driver. So we drive to John uh, from Johnstown up to get to Syracuse. And it's snowing like crazy. And somehow the bus breaks down about an hour or so from Syracuse. And the bus driver on Thanksgiving Day gets off the bus looking for help. Anyway, comes back with a police car. And eventually we get a, an, another bus because the bus wouldn't go. So we arrive in Syracuse late. Uh, it was supposed to be like a seven o'clock game time. We don't start the game till nine. The bus driver gets the, you know, the, the bus fixed, the original bus. And we play and uh, typically it was a nine, seven game. It ended after midnight. And now we get back on the bus and we've got this long bus ride back to Long Island. And we get out of there. It's only like one o'clock at night. And now we're heading back to Long Island. So we are on the thruway. We get to, uh, you know, the place where Albany, where you turn down and the guys are hungry and whatnot. And actually, back then we had beer on the bus, which we shouldn't have had, but we had beer on the bus and so forth. One of the guys mentioned names since it uh, was Bobby Brown. Uh, a lot of guys had beer on the bus and so forth. I was sitting in front of a guy named Wayne Kitchen. His name was Porky Kitchen. Wayne was one of the forwards and he was the clown on the team. He'd give guys hot foots. He'd give others, you know, he, he, was, he was an interesting guy. I was sitting in front of him uh, along the window. And uh, anyway, we stop at the bus. Uh, we stop at this roadside place. There's one waitress in there. 20 guys come in hungry. And while we're waiting for her to serve us, like at two in the morning, it was still open on Thanksgiving. She's serving it. And the guys were hungry. Bobby Ted starts throwing white bread across the table and so forth. And, uh, you know, now, now, there's two state troopers, Greg, unobtrusively sitting in the corner of the uh, of the little restaurant. So we leave the place sort of in shambles. Bobby was throwing the bread and we get back on the bus. No sooner we on the bus, the sirens start sounding. The cops pull us over. And our coach at the time was Wayne, uh, was uh, oh, Gene, Gene, Gina Temichuk who had played briefly with the Detroit Red Wings. He, and we called him Aki. Aki was the coach. He was, a, he was, you know, a nice guy. Anyway, he starts telling, okay, guys, make believe you're sleeping. So he yells out. Now, Porky is sitting behind me. And Bobby Brown is sitting across the aisle from me, the guy who started all the ruckus with the, throwing the white bread. And as the cops come on the bus, our trainer, Bill Lumley, was in the bathroom. He had thrown up and he was in the bathroom. And the door was locked and the coach says, all right, guys, throw the beer cans all on top of Lumley in the bathroom. So he's in the bathroom. Guys throw all the beer cans in the back of the bus. They feed him, lock the door. And there's Lumley with a whole stack of beer. And the coach says, you'll make believe you're sleeping, eh, guys? And now I'm standing and laughing. And Kitchen is sitting behind me, Porky Kitchen. And as the cops come on, I'm sitting, as I said, across from Bobby Brown. He starts taking out a back scratcher, you know, those and starts tickling me along the window. And I'm cut that out. The cops are going to think I'm a wise guy. Anyway, it it was crazy. They haul Bobby Brown off. One cop goes to the back of the bus, can't open the bathroom door, going to take out his gun and shoot the lock off. And then we implore him, told him that the trainer was in there 
you're going to get your your shoes all dirty. It was snowing and all. Anyway, he doesn't do the door. So the cops go leaves without opening the door. Poor Lumley would have been shot in the wrong place. And Bobby Brown comes back onto the bus after being you know lectured by the cops, and he gives us the salute, the famous salute with the with the middle finger, and sits down. The coach comes over to me. I'm the only non-player except for the bus driver on the coat on the road, and he says. Hey, Barry, you're not going to tell the owner about this little incident, are you? I said, no, no, it's between us. And we proceeded to go back, uh, you know, back to Long Island. But there were many, many trips rooming with the players. Uh, it was at a slap shot. But that was one of my stories that, uh, that, that, I, that I remember certainly well. So that was it. And that was a precursor. It was, you know, uh, it was fun. I learned a lot of hockey. I sat with John Brophy and and I learned a lot of hockey, you know, uh, from those guys, you know, on the bus trips when, when they weren't fooling around. Card games were always there. They never got I never got stuck in those card games. There was a French Canadian game called Bouray, which the guys played and where you could lose your money right away. And they were always asking me. They were making seventy five, ninety five dollars a week. The Ducks players that time and they'd leave Comac with ninety five dollars a week on a Friday paycheck. And then the, on those trips to Johnstown, which would take a long time, they would play cards, uh, you know, on the way there. And uh, actually, the coach played cards with these guys. He was a great card player. And by the time we would get to Harrisburg, you know, halfway uh, to Johnstown, these guys were bereft of money. So they were asking me for money for lunch to go to McDonald's because they had lost their money to the coach who was playing cards. He was a good card player and they didn't know they, they weren't the smartest guys. Let's put it that way, you know, in the world. But it was it was fun. The precursor days that led to uh, I trek with the Islanders. So that was a, a, a good a good turning. But the thing about doing the games back then on radio and you guys would appreciate it. I did it over the telephone. I had to hold the telephone up to my ear for two and a half hours and I had no color commentator. And the bus driver, who the regular bus driver, was a nice enough guy. He would come up to the press box, if you would call it a press box, or wherever we were announcing the game from, and he would sit there and uh, and I, I would make a comment. And if he agreed with the comment that he made, he shake his head yes. If he didn't agree with what or what, what my comment about the play was, he would shake his head. So that was my my kind of critique. As you would be my, my color commentator uh, on my play-by-play description of what was going on. So that was how we did it over the telephone with a telephone uh, w- w- holding the receiver. Not great for two and a half hours, but that was the way we did it in 1967, 68, 69, uh, you know, time of the year. But it was fun. And that's, you know, you break in. And then when you get to the professional ranks, uh, you know, it's a lot easier and a lot different. So, Barry, how old but were you when fun. you started with the Ducks? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I you're was li- probably... you were living at home, so I, I assume you no, were on well, the other I was side. Living at home. Yeah, I was. I, I I graduated from Ohio State with my master's degree in uh, 67, uh, 60, 66. So I was 24, 25 years old, 25, 26 you know, 27. And then uh, later, uh, when I got married, 
and I moved to Long Island. You know, it was 1972. I got married and uh, eventually, you know, moved moved to Long Island. You know, worked out of Long Island and uh, I worked for cable TV. I worked for Suffolk Cablevision after I worked for WGLI. I did WHA hockey. That was my uh, professional hockey debut. I did the Golden Blades, which was another story of the WHA. And that was another uh, kind of crazy situation. That was a team that played out of Madison Square Garden and later folded because they couldn't pay the rent at Madison Square Garden. And there's a great story involved with that. I didn't get paid for quite a long time. So like a 10 or 12 games. And the owner of the team was in, in the radio uh, music business. And his office was in Madison Square Garden into Penn Plaza, that two Penn Plaza building. And after a while, I, I kept saying, you know, I didn't get a check, you know, I've been getting through. So th there were rumors that the team was was in financial trouble because a couple of on the trips where we were coming back, back from Winnipeg, uh, they kicked us off the plane <laughs> and we had to go to a hotel and waited for more for money to come. Anyway, so I go to uh, it's on a Friday afternoon, drive in with my wife from Long Island. And uh, I try, go to this guy's office on uh, Two Penn Plaza. It's Friday afternoon. I go to his office and he writes me a check. And, and I said, no, I don't want to check on the team's account. I want a personal check. So he writes me a personal check for five, six, seven thousand dollars, whatever it happened to be. And his bank happened to be on Madison Avenue in the 80s. And it was like two o'clock in the afternoon in New York City on, on a Friday afternoon. So I jump in the car with my wife. We go across town. Uh, I, I get the check cashed. The next day, the team folded. They, we were supposed to play at Madison Square Garden the next day. That was it. They had to go to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and finish out the season and so forth. But that was my Golden Blades uh, experience. And then uh, I did some games. I filled in, did some games for the uh, – I did a few Ranger games on the radio, a few Islander games on TV and – maybe 75, 76. And then my big break came uh, with the Islanders uh, in the, the year of the second cup. I was there, of course, when they won the cup. I was there for the great J.P. Parisi goal at Madison Square Garden. So I don't want to go too far ahead, but that's a little bit of the background before, you know, I got involved with the Islanders. You, you have walked us right up to the line of what we want to talk about. How did you get involved with the Islanders? I mean, I know you said you went more full-time in that second Stanley Cup season, but give us your intro of how you became okay. the radio voice of the Islanders. Well, I was covering the team uh, for various things. I, I had my own business where I provided actualities. I covered the teams, all the New York sports teams, the Yankees, the Mets, the Islanders, the Rangers, and uh, uh, throughout the 70s and you know into the early 80s. I was there, of course, when they won covering the game for, for CBS Radio uh, in 1980 when they won the, the, the first cup. I was in the press box uh, on that historic night in May. I did a play-by-play -play of that highlight, and that was later played on, on CBS you know, uh, for the winning cup. And then uh, I knew the team. I, you know, I knew the people, and I knew John Potvan, and I knew uh, John was uh, like the seventh defenseman for the Islanders. So for the next season, the Islanders were simulcast on radio and TV, which they were in the 1980 First Year Cup and, and in 1981. I would fill in, John's job was 
to do the in-between in periods, the intermission broadcast. So between periods, he would come on and fill in that time instead of the TV people. The TV do with their own thing. So he would do the first period, second period, pre-game he'd interview Al Arbor uh, for radio and or, you know, which would go on the radio. Now, when John had to play because an injury had occurred on, and they forced him into the lineup. So I was on call. So they would say, Barry, can you be can you work for John that day? So, you know, go to the arena, do all of his things pregame, blah, blah, blah. John has to play. And so so that's how my introduction in terms of the Islanders radio was started. Well, I did that, and John had to fill in on several occasions. Finally, sometime in the middle of the season, they said, hey, you you sound pretty good, and you have a nice rapport, uh, you know, when you're with John. Why don't you guys go to Philadelphia? We're playing Flyers, and we'll just see. You'll do a game on the radio, the two of you. So we won't simulcast. We'll have you and John do the, the game and so forth. Well, they liked that, and then they decided it was close to playoff time, said come playoff time. We're not going to simulcast. We don't want to do simulcast. You and John do the games on radio, uh, you know, play by play and color. And, and that's how, you know, right place, right time, get the opportunity and, and you run with it. So that's how I started. And I, we were fortunate. Now, what happened in that run for the first cup will be it's in it's in a book that I wrote. And in that first cup run, there was a, a couple of incidents that happened. The Islanders, of course, uh, were playing the Pittsburgh Penguins in the, in their early early round of that second cup run and they bombed Pittsburgh at home for the first two games. Uh, they went down to Pittsburgh and the, uh, the Pittsburgh owner, DeBartolo, John DeBartolo, I think is, was giving refunds basically to the Pittsburgh fans because how bad the team was and Pittsburgh fans were putting hats uh, or bags over their head in response to the way the team had played. Anyway, Pittsburgh rallied, they win the two games down there incredibly. And now we head back to Long Island for the fifth game. Somehow or other, Pittsburgh is winning the third, the deciding game, three to one. And folks who remember that playoff game with about five minutes to go. And we were on WOR radio now. We were on a big time radio station. We didn't have our regular engineer uh, for that game because he was away at spring training. And the engineer left our microphone open. And with five minutes to go, I turned to John and I said this. I said, I can't believe these guys are choking like dogs. Five minutes to go, three to one lead for Pittsburgh. And the French goalie, I forget the, his name, was standing on his head. Well, Mike McEwen scores a goal. John Tonelli scores a goal. And they win it in overtime. Now, the next day, my comment was in the newspaper because I don't know who the columnist was for the Daily News. <laughs> I could have lost my job, and you guys could appreciate this being on the air, by saying something like that, but you never know when your microphone is going to be open. Fortunately, I, I didn't lose my job. Nobody made a comment about that. They won the game and went on, of course, to win the, the Cup that year. And, of course, we, we were happy to do that. Then, of course, you know, the other Cups were, were fantastic. Traveled with the team, worked with John. John was terrific. Uh, and Bobby Nystrom, who I later worked with uh, also in my years, uh, 17 years of doing the uh, Islander radio.
So go ahead. Anything else? Yeah, I wanted to ask more specifically, starting with Jean Potvin, because nowadays you never hear of a player going back and forth between the ice and the radio booth, depending on the game. But that was the first couple of years you working with Jean Potvin, and then he retires from his pr- playing career and does become the full time color commentator alongside you. Just how much did you learn from him? just being next to him and just what he added to those broadcasts. And obviously he was calling games of his brother for so many years. Greg, uh, I learned an awful lot. First of all, I never played hockey in my life. My kids played. I've watched hockey for a long time from the, from being in the Madison square, the old Madison square garden, you know, sitting up in the, the, the bleachers. Uh, and that was another experience sneaking into the garden after they, uh, they had the, the, the Rangers had a farm team called the Rovers and they would play Sunday afternoons and then the Rangers would play Sunday night. Well, you could get in for 50 cents, you know, to, to go to the games. So a trick would be you'd go to the Rover game for like 50 cents and then maybe you'd try to hide out in the bathroom to see if you could stay for the Ranger game and so forth. So that was my experience, you know, for the Rangers when the old Madison Square Garden, you know, in the, uh, uh, 60s, early, you know, and 50s. Anyway, um, John, uh, I was amazed at uh, when doing the game and you as a color commentator would, would note how their vision is different from the normal player, how they see where the puck is going to be off the stick and they could see it on, on the naked eye rather than on a replay because they know where, where the stick is going to be with the blade. And so anyway, uh, I learned a lot from him. If English would have been his first language, although he spoke perfect English, I think he would have been one of the top color commentators. John had a real good eye. He was very bright. John went to college. Uh, you know, he had uh, he had an offers to go to Princeton to go to college. I mean, he was a very smart guy. Uh, you know, he was Dennis's older brother and so forth. He, he was a very good uh, stockbroker. Stock so he talented. He used those talents his intelligence in, in, in doing that field as well. Anyway, but but John was fun to be with. We had a great time. Our wives got together. I was older than a lot of the players. By the time I got to do the Islanders, like in 1972, I was like 40 years old. So I was older than a lot of the players. So I didn't have that relationship that I had, like, say, with the Ducks players when I was in my 20s, you know, back in the 60s or whatever. So I was more like a, a an older brother, father for, but, you know, being around Eddie Westfall and Jiggs and, you know, and so we were like the older, you know, the older group and so forth. But the, Al Arbor was terrific. Uh, you know, I don't want to jump, uh, jump into, to, but, but John, John was, was fun. <laughs> he had a great sense of humor and God willing, we, we, we missed him this year. Of course, he passed away and uh, had been sick for a little bit while, for a little while. And uh, I miss him. He, he was a great, great guy. Well, I'm glad you brought up his sense of humor because he told me, I think, one of the funnier stories I've heard from, you know, those back in the 70s. Uh, I I can't remember what team he was playing for. It may have been the L.A. Kings. I'm going to have to double check that. But he said that he was a rookie and he was being bullied by another guy on the team, I guess, as some sort of initiation. And that player had a set of dentures. So (laughs) Podvin got real tired of, you know, being treated not very well in his first year. 
So he broke his own stick at practice so he could get off the ice and he took his teammates dentures and asked the trainer to <laughs> mail them home at the start of a road trip. So this guy that had been tormenting him didn't have teeth essentially for the next 10 days. So I always thought that was a pretty funny story of uh, old time hockey. But one of the games that Greg and I wanted to ask you about was calling the Easter Epic, because I assume you've done you know thousands of games, but that has to be one that really stands out. So any memories of calling the Easter Epic? Oh, uh, that was one of the highlights of, of, of my career. And as a broadcaster, we'll set the scene for you, of course. The Islanders, uh, it was the seventh and deciding game of the series with Washington. And it was on uh, uh, Saturday night. Uh, it was the only series that was still being played. So all of the uh, other series were done. So Canada, all the TV and, you know, CBC and Hockey Night Canada, everybody was there. So what happened was we would normally sit at center ice in Landover, you know, at the Cap Center at a great spot to watch the game from right next to the uh, Caps radio. But they kicked us out of our spot to give it to the TV. So they put us in the ble- in the end zone. Now, the end zone in the seats below the press box, if any of you remember the cap center, the, the press box in the cap center was off in the corner uh, of the building. Uh, it wasn't at center ice, the press box. And so they sat us in the stands below the press box, gave us a, a monitor, put a little table there, and we sat in the stands in the corner and had to broadcast that game from there. Now you can imagine, it was almost impossible to tell and the camera angle that the camera was opposite that we were on. So if they were coming up the right wing on the TV camera, it was sort of like, you know, you had to figure out it, it was difficult, but it, it was crazy. So we were sitting in the end zone trying to do the game. And of course, game went on and uh, it was an incredible game. Kelly Rudy was the Islander goalie at that time. And he had to face 75 shots in the game. Now, the way the game went, it was hard to even get out to go to the bathroom because we were sitting in the stands. So in between periods, you know, either John would have to, you know, take over. John, I'll run to the bathroom. (laughs) You do the in-between period or throw it back to the studio. So uh, we we go on with the game and your adrenaline is so, so high. Uh, You know, Corey, you just don't really, you're focused, even as bad as we were sitting. My worst fear was that I wouldn't be able to call the goal, that I wouldn't be able to see it. It would, And it, as it turned out, it happened on the far end of the ice. And I'll d- describe what happened. We're, we're sitting in this corner of the end zone, the far end of the ice. Pat LaFontaine, you know, has the puck and he moves up on the play and uh, he takes the shot and he scores the goal. You know, it was, and, and everybody falls down. Nobody could get up. They were so exhausted to celebrate even. And Pat scores the goal. And it's, you know, the Islanders win. I was so happy that I could see it and and record. My worst fear was that I would blow that call as a play-by-play guy. To be on the air for seven hours. We started at seven. It was two o'clock in the morning, you know, that that we finished. And it was a cute story involving that. A guy took a plane and we we later had a contest on WOR. Where were you at whatever the time happened to be when the winning goal was scored? 
the guy wrote, he took a plane from London. He was on a plane from London, flew to JFK, and he was driving home on the Belt Parkway, uh, listening to the game on the radio at that time. And he heard the winning goal there. So we had a contest. You know, who was the, the guy who wrote the best story of where he was? He didn't win this kind. Con- it was going to be two tickets to the first playoff uh, game after that. Well, there was a guy who was in prison. This is a true story. A guy was a prisoner and he wrote he was in his cell listening to the game on what, a transistor radio. So he went to the to the warden to see if he could get. And he, he was the best. That was an incredible letter. Where were you when you, the winning goal scored? And we were going to give him the tickets to, to see if he could get a pardon. Or, or get released with, with somebody to take him to the game. But he, he couldn't. And but, but that was another story on that winning night. Now, as far as I was concerned, I had a softball practice that morning on that Sunday Easter morning uh, at 9 o'clock. Ended up going to the airport. Had to go to Canada. We couldn't fly back to Long Island because of fog. And I ended up getting back to my house just before 9 o'clock. And I was so pumped up, I changed into my softball clothes and went to my my team's softball practice that morning on on Easter Sunday morning at nine o'clock. So that was the incredible Easter Sunday epic, you know, from a personal standpoint. That and uh, the goal in uh, 93, which maybe we'll get to uh, when they beat Pittsburgh Penguins, when David Volokh scored. Those were the two from strictly from a play by play standpoint. Uh, two of the, the highlight goals uh, that I called. A couple years later, Sean Potvin moves aside, but he's replaced by another Islander legend in Bobby Nystrom as your partner. So you got to work alongside Bobby for the better part of a decade. And, and Bobby would have been there in 1993 for the upset over the Pittsburgh Penguins. Yeah. And just take us back to that day and also working with... I didn't have as uh, as personal relationship uh, with Bobby as I did with John. Although... Uh, we, we got along very well, never had any argument. I respected uh, Bobby, his, his knowledge of the game uh, and so forth. And what was interesting would, would be uh, Bobby would bring his son, Eric, who later went on to play in the NHL, as you all probably know. Eric was about 12 or 13. My daughter, Jill, was that same age, about 12 or 13. And uh, they both were in the press box. And, you know, Teenagers schmooze a little bit. They want to talk. They're the same age. And I said to Jill, I said, Jill, I, I don't mind you talking to Eric and, you know, whatever. But I want you, you got the good seat in the house here. You got to earn your keep a little bit. I want you to keep some stats. I want you to keep when they, um, you know, how many faceoffs they won, you know, uh, how many, you know, the typical first period, I want you to keep numbers, stats, you know, for me. We had a statistician, of course, but we wanted, you know, you to occupy her. So she did that. I said, all right, Jill, for the second period, I want you to use a different part of your brain. I want you to use a critical part of the game. You play hockey. You play hockey. I want you to tell me what the Islanders are doing well, what they're doing poorly, and give me a critique, okay? Well, the Islanders are killing a penalty. And she writes, and she says, she writes down on this little scribble paper, the Islander box is too tight. They're allowing too many good shots from a point. And so help me God, this is a true story. She takes that scribbled note, puts it down on the table where you guys sit all the time. We're still at the old press box at the Coliseum. 
and puts that piece of paper between Bobby and myself. He looks down on the paper and he reads verbatim what my daughter, hey, Barry, you know, the Islander box is too tight. There are too many good shots from the blue line. I nearly fell out of my seat. And she knew the game. And, and Bobby, you know, said, so that, that, was, that was great. One of the things with, with Bobby later on when he retired, I had the, the fortune to emcee the uh, ceremonies when his number was retired and when, Bobby, uh, when Clark Gillies' number was retired. So I got to know Bobby's folks when we would go out to uh, British Columbia because his folks were from there. And I, I got to know his mom and dad. When I uh, had a chance to do the ceremony for, for Bobby, I happened to mention, I asked him, what was the word that would describe in Swedish, I'm Jewish, and there's a, an expression, a mensch. When somebody's a mensch, it's a pretty popular thing. He's a, a man, he's, he's, a, he's a real good guy, and so forth. So I asked him, what's the equivalent of that word in Swedish? So when I was doing the ceremony on the ice, I said, Bobby, if your grandmother or grandfather were here and your mom and dad are here, then they would say, you were a mensch. And then I said the Swedish word and so forth. And it really went over, you know, well. And I, I used the, the expression, I said, Bobby, when you stood up for your teammates, you know, with, with your fist or whatever, you were, you were there behind, not just with your fist, but as a teammate, you, you were always there. And as you later evolved uh, after your career ended, your, your career as a, somebody uh, in the public with your philanthropy, you're out in community activities. You were always there. Bobby Nystrom was there with the kids. You were there with charities and so forth. So I said, you had to walk with a closed fist at one time, but then you walked with an open hand after that, reaching out to people. And when I wrote my book, and I, I wrote a book uh, about my career in hockey and about my life, it's called Walking with an Open Hand. It meant a lot for me to be involved with that, with his ceremony. And so he, he was great. You know what it is, guys? I never played hockey. So in broadcasting, what I tried to do, I, and in the other sports that I did, I did basketball, football, baseball. I never I never played these games as, uh, as a real athlete. But I knew what my strengths were. And I said, I am going to do paint word pictures as a play-by-play -play guy and let the color commentator, the guy who played the game or knows the game better than I, describe what happened. And in fact, listening to you the other day in describing, and I wrote this to you in a little note, in listening to the three-period, uh, uh, you know, combat, it was so good to, to listen to you describe what had happened on those three goals the other night, you know, when they were coming back. And being able to, to listen and being able to, to see in my mind what was happening by your description. And of course, you know, Chris's fantastic descriptions and excitement and so forth. So uh, that's what I always say. Let the color commentator do his thing. You do the hows, the how, the why, and the so forth is the, is the, is the analyst. The who and the what and the when, where is the play-by-play -play guy. And then all the sports that I did, and I've worked with a lot of people, professionals, people in professional sports. And the other, I never forgot that. And I said, the audience wants to know, you know, what's happening. And he wants to know how and why. And it's not your job to have to do both. Let the guy who's the expert do the both. And if you do that, 
the chemistry between your play-by-play and color commentator works. And that never happened with Bobby and myself. I let him do his thing and then with John Potvin in the hockey. And I think that's why we were successful as, as a broadcast crew. And I, I always realized I never overstepped my limits and the audience ended up the better for it. Some play-by-play guy think they do every, they want to do everything, you know. They do play-by-play, they're doing the color. They don't allow room for the color, for the analyst to come in. And I never felt that way. And I think um, th- that was a good thing in, in my working as a broadcaster. Well, you just showed us that picture of you and Kinger. And, you know, we know Kinger has talked yeah. about what you meant to him as far as being a mentor and an idol and also your work with Hofstra students. So can you just talk a little bit about mentoring the next generation or I should say perhaps generations of, you know, Isles Radio. I really enjoyed that. Uh, they asked me to to do, uh, work with some of the students at Hofstra. My very dear friend, Ed Ingalls, who, who passed away not that long ago, uh, was working as a professional in residence at Hofstra. Uh, Ed had given me my first break at WCBS Radio. So Ed was now as a professor, a professional in residence, and I, he did color commentary with me on many games. And, and Ed said, well, you know, look, why don't you, you're not doing the Islander games, but you have so much experience in hockey. Why don't you, you know, come in and work with our, our students? So I would, we would come into the, uh, they would run tapes of Islander games and I would sit with some of the students and, you know, we would go over the game. And I said, description is very important. Location, you know, all the things that you need if you're doing radio. As you got to let the folks know where the puck is. Is it in the corner? Is it in? Is it in the slot? Is it at the blue line? You know, is it in center ice? All of the location points, which on television, you know, you see, but you don't have to describe. But on radio, it, it's critical that you you do those location points because the audience has you're painting a word picture. Anyway, worked with the students. Students were great. I said, when you're going in a locker room. Here's the things you should be asking. Don't be too obtrusive. You know, sit and watch the game and try to figure out different things and watch what Chris is doing as the radio, uh, what Greg is doing as the color commentator and so forth. Anyway, I enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. It it brought back, you know, uh, some of my memories. And I always enjoyed teaching. And And it's sort of the way I conducted my own life, walking with an open hand, giving back to people. And, and so forth. And that's that's what I try to do with the Hofstra students, what I try to do with any younger people that I worked with. Uh, I never was jealous of people that, uh, you know, came on after me. I was so happy for, for Chris getting the opportunity to do the play-by-play. He deserved it. He, he did everything that was necessary. And uh, he worked his way up. And the same thing with Greg. You know, you pay your dues and you get rewarded, Cody. And uh, it's good to see that it wasn't somebody, you know, that just walked in and, you know, got the job without working for it. So anyway, that's a little bit of my philosophy of, uh, of, of broadcasting, being with people. You mentioned your work with WCBS, and I believe you covered six Olympics for yes. WCBS radio. Where did you get the chance to go visit and, and maybe what were some of the most well, monumental events that you got to cover? Well, I started 1984 with the Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles. I was working for ABC Radio Network. Uh, and uh, I ended up, I, I, 
<laughs> I ended up calling the swimming swimming races at the Olympics. Now, I didn't know anything really about swimming, but I knew, again, working with somebody who's the expert, the, the swimming, you know, an Olympian. So I knew what to say, to call the race description. They're off, you know, 50 meters and, you know, who's ahead, you know, ahead and so forth. And when they would come to the, to the finish line, my voice would go up, and here they come to the, you know, and the craziest thing would be in the, in the Olympics, you never know sometimes who wins. You have to look to the scoreboard, electronic scoreboard, because a lot of times they win by one hundredth or of a second. So you, you don't want to blow the call and say the U.S. wins, you know, the gold. And so so you had to take your eye off the finish line and quickly look to. The, and there was one race I called. It was a tie two two U.S. swimmers finished in a tie for the gold medal. But so I started in 84. I, I did that in 88. Uh, I went to Korea and that was an experience, but it was nice, you know, uh, going anyway, that was uh, another little bit of it. Anyway, you were asking me questions, Grant. No, I think uh, we really got uh, quite the stories from you. I mean, from obviously the Islander days, pre-Islander days, even post-Islander yeah. days. So uh, thank you, Barry. Um, it's just been a pleasure to hear and, and uh, great to catch up as well. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I want to mention the 93 game, which we didn't get to, which was for the other highlight to get a chance. That was the game they beat Pittsburgh. It was a remarkable series. If people remember the series with Washington and all the crap that went on in, in that series with uh, Dale Hunter. And uh, some of my best calls were in those games uh, when they beat Washington. Those, those were exciting games at the Coliseum um, and so forth. Then, then, of course, to go on to beat Pittsburgh was and David Volek's goal was Pearl back to Volek. He shoots and scores. He scores, and the Islanders win in overtime again. David Volek at 5:16 of the overtime has kept the magic going, and the Islanders do it again in overtime. Volek's second goal of the game, and the Islanders win it four to three and end the reign of the Pittsburgh Penguins' Stanley Cup dream. I had said to Bobby Nystrom, I couldn't believe we were in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was going for their third cup in a row. The Islanders had a, a three to one lead in that game and they blew that lead. And you're going in overtime in the team that's going for their third cup in a row. And you figured, hey, it ain't happening. And of course, David Vollock, who never did too much in his career with the Islanders, scored that uh, famous dramatic goal. And they went on to play. Montreal gave Montreal a tough battle and they lost a couple of tough overtime games with, with Montreal, but those, those were uh, ex exciting goals and so forth. So I wanted to bring, bring those games in for Islander fans who, who may remember them. And uh, they were a part of my, uh, my history with you guys. Of course. And, and you were lucky enough to be part in so many memorable postseason moments. So uh, again, thank you, Barry. And, uh, Hope to catch you down in Raleigh at some point. I know you're you're living down in North Carolina now. Yep, I'm rooting for the Islanders. I I catch the games and uh, uh, you know MSG. I have MSG TV down here and Islander Radio on RHU. Listen to you guys and keeping in touch with every game. And uh, so thank you again for uh, having the opportunity to talk to you guys. And uh, 
we'll catch up with you guys soon. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.